Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. Today we have Brother Ashraf joining us for a topic on Islamic finance. And inshallah, within this podcast, we'll go through the principles of Islamic finance and see if there's anything really unique to it. Um, but just a little bit about uh, Brother Ashraf's background. He has over 15 years of experience in the field of Islamic finance. He's on the managing director of Ihsan Advisory, which is a full-service Sharia advisory firm, which focuses on the intersection between Islamic finance, ESG, and positive impact. Um, he's worked for many Islamic banks uh, across the Muslim world, places in Malaysia, places in the Middle East, in the U.S. He has a bachelor's in finance from the University of Maryland, an LLB in Sharia from Umm Al-Qura University, and a Master's of Islamic Finance practice. He is a certified Sharia auditor, and he is an advisor and a board member with a number of institutions worldwide. So, Jazakallah uh, khair for joining us, Brother Ashraf. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, brother. It's a pleasure, mashallah. Um, so, I think let's just get straight into it. Islamic finance is definitely one of those topics which, uh, in the modern world, people especially non-Muslims, uh, are, are very interested in. I was just recently watching uh, a YouTube video from Bill Burr, um, who was discussing it as well. So it's, in it's interesting to see now that people are looking at other modes, uh, other systems of economic thought, and just trying to see what the, different prin what the principles are and what the differences are. Um, so before we even get into Islamic finance, is there anything in general you would like the audience to know before we even get into the principles or behind how Islamic finance works. Okay. Alhamdulillah. Anything that I want them to know. Um, well, I think well, the, probably the first thing is important to know is that we're all human beings, right? And, and, and that uh, everybody is trying their best, you know, and when we talk about fiqh, fiqh is the attempt of human beings to, arrive at the intent of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to do, right? And, and Islamic finance, Islamic banking, you know, is no different because it's easy to be critical um, with a particular ideal. Um, but then on the ground, the human beings who are trying to make these, you know, balance various things, um, you know, we just have to realize our own, our own limitations, our own fallibility. And then at the same time, you know, the appreciate the efforts that have gone before us and then try to kind of build something together that is, inshallah, beautiful because everything Islamic should be beautiful. That's part of our religion. And inshallah, pleasing to Allah. I mean, that's the goal, inshallah. And something that represents a rahmah uh, for the alameen, a rahmah to everyone, a means of mercy, uh, because that is what our Prophet ﷺ was sent oh, as. So anything that we do that's Islamic, you know, we realize it's a human effort. We try our best. We aim for beauty and we aim for rahmah. And uh, mm. yeah, I think I want to probably premise the discussion with that. And I, I think that's a great point to start off on. Um, it's just a reminder that this is this is our scholars' best attempts at trying to create this economic system i mean islamic finance is is a relatively new industry it's only been around for you know like the last 40 50 or 60 years right yeah 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 true right um but it, it, it's interesting to see how our scholars have taken the principles of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam 1400 years ago to create 
an entire framework for an Islamic finance system. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, it depends how you look at Islamic and finance. I mean, the thing that's new is the finance element, right? Because um, there were Islamic transactions were happening, you know, since the beginning, mm -hmm. right? The transactions that people were transacting even before the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And when he came, he saw them transacting and then he would certain transactions he would allow and certain transactions he would adjust, you know, um, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But when it comes to kind of grappling with the banking sector um, and fractional reserve, you know, currencies and and uh, the fact that people need, you know, these types of long-term financing and short-term financing and secured financing. I mean, this is where, you know, banking was a relative, is a relatively new like modern banking is, it's not, it's not the invention of the Muslims. <laughs> so, so, I mean, when we're trying to do Islamic finance, I mean, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take finance and maybe this is a good time for me to give you a, a definition sort of that I'm, mm -hmm. it's my okay. working definition of Islamic finance, right? Um, because a lot of, a lot of, of people will define Islamic finance differently. And when I was in, you know, like my whole journey, right, with Islamic finance was that I was in the United States and I wanted to figure out how to help our Muslim community. We have like five, six million Muslims. And, and I asked different people, what should I do? What should I study? So I ended up studying finance with the intent to do something Islamic, right? And then, and then after that, I ended up working in the, in the field and then I moved to Saudi Arabia and alhamdulillah, I, continued my Sharia studies there and I worked there in Islamic finance and then I moved to Malaysia. And the whole idea was that, okay, in Saudi Arabia, everybody's Muslim, basically. So mm -hmm. I can't, we can't do Islamic finance and explain it the same way in Saudi Arabia as we do in Malaysia. Because in Malaysia, you have a large percentage of population that are not Muslim. And, and so we need Islamic finance to appeal to them as well. And so I was thinking, if we can explain Islamic finance in a way that everybody can understand, Right, which hopefully is our goal in this podcast. Yeah, uh, and that then I can take it back home to America, and inshallah, you know, um, give something of value. So I mean, the way that I would define Islamic finance is based on the goals of Islamic finance. So it's finance or banking, Islamic banking, um, which seeks to maximize the benefit uh, to individuals and societies and minimize the harm uh, with specific focus on the maximization, on the preservation of faith, the preservation of life, the preservation of the intellect, the preservation of family, and the preservation of wealth. So I'm sure you've heard of these, these five maqasid or mm -hmm. yet, you know, protecting faith, protecting life, protecting intellect, protecting the family or, or, or lineage, and then protecting wealth, which are you know, big maqasid of, of the sharia. And basically what we're trying to do is going back to that. And we're trying to protect the individuals and we're trying to protect the society. And we want to maximize the benefit and we want to minimize the harm. And, and, it's, and all of that is basically an attempt to define the word Islamic, you know? Mm, okay. Because... That, you say Islamic finance, Islamic banking, Islamic insurance, whatever, right? What is Islamic, right? What is it? You know, creeping Sharia, mm -hmm. like, what is it, right? So, <laughs> uh, so I'm defining Islamic 
from from it's a description and it's talking about fiqh particular and it's from the maqasid that these are the aims and if and we may fall short but if we say this is our working definition we're trying to do finance we're trying to do banking but in a way that maximizes the benefit and minimizes the harm to societies and to individuals and societies but then someone will say what is the benefit and what is the harm right mm -hmm. like i think that you know uh, gambling is a benefit. Well, how come you guys are, are, are preventing it when it brings in this much amount of tax revenue and it makes people happy, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. We'll say, no, when we're talking about benefit and harm, we have to go back to our moral system, our worldview, which is we need to first and foremost protect people's faith, protect life, protect intellect, protect family, protect wealth. So if something is hitting any of those and harming them, then those are harms that need to be avoided. And if something is supporting that, then those are benefits that need to be, you know, maximized. So everything else are details. Everything okay. else is okay. Now let's take this transaction, right? Let's take this deal and let's analyze it in light of that framework. So, so, so basically, you're saying that what Islamic finance is is the is, is taking our core values, our core, our moral compass, which we derive from Islam um, and trying to maximize the benefit, minimize the harm and the overall, the foundation behind it are the maqasids, the, the objectives of Islamic law. So the preservation of life, intellect, religion, family, property, these are the things that ultimately we're trying to protect, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, you know, typically when people explain Islamic finance, they first start by talking about riba, gharar. Uh, they talk about the prohibitions, how we avoid riba. Oh, why do we avoid riba? What's so bad about riba, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we know that it's bad, right? Allah tells us that it's bad. But when it comes to transactions, right? Like riba, like we know that you can't pray Salat al-Dhuhr for three rakahs. That's not allowed. Right. Mm -hmm. Why is that not allowed? Why? What's wrong with three? Why not two? Why not five? Right. Because God said so. Right. It's an act of worship. Right. But when it comes to transactions, there is a rationale behind them. Right. And that rationale is not necessarily like a super secret. Right. Of course, scholars will debate, you know, about what's the rationale. One of my friends, he wrote a uh, his name is Mansour Al-Ghamdi. He published his his Ph.D. was on Hikmat Tahrim al-Riba. The wisdom of the prohibition of riba, hmm. and uh, unfortunately, it's not uh, translated yet. But it was published by Bank Al Bilad, and it's a very interesting book because he looks at at the history. He looks at all of the different opinions, you know, of the Muslim scholars talking about trying to discern what is the wisdom of the prohibition of riba. Because we know that there's a wisdom. Hmm. Allah is Hakim. Everything He does has a wisdom, right? But they differ, you know, and. And at the end of the day, you know, he did a PhD and he he concluded that the strongest argument for the wisdom of the prohibition of riba is that when the riba when that becomes the culture in a society, it kills the spirit of charity in people's hearts, hmm. particularly charitable lending. Right. So, you know, I owe you money. You lent me some money. You know, you lent me a thousand dollars and then. COVID happened, whatever, I lost my job. And I say, you know, Ahmed, can I, um, look, I lost my job. Things are really messed up right now. Can you give me another like six months to pay you? From a Sharia perspective, in Canada, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if a person is in true financial difficulty, 
then they you give them time until they're in in a, in a better state. So you are somehow obligated to give me time, right? Um, and I'm sure you would do that, right? Um, <laughs> but 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 somebody else in a society that's infected with this culture of riba, they'd be like, okay, well, I mean, you know, you want six months. And they look at the six month, you know, deposit rate or they look at the average return on the stock market and they'll say, well, you know, I mean, if you were to take a loan for six months, it's going to cost mm. you 12 percent. I'm not asking for 12 percent, but I mean, at least, you know, there's inflation, there's this, there's that, you know, pay me six percent. Right. Mm -hmm. And like that becomes the culture. Right. Let alone when you have a situation where someone is in need, they're in difficulty and they come and they ask you for a loan. Right. They ask you for a loan and, you know, hey, this is my situation. You know, can I borrow, you know, five thousand dollars? And you might have fifty thousand dollars sitting in your bank account getting no returns. Right. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, oh, he wants to borrow whatever five thousand dollars. I mean, but I could have invested this. I could put this in this investment and that of us, whatever. Right. I can make money. OK, if you if that culture is there because of the riba that culture, then how much are you going to pay me? Mm -hmm. You need to give me a return, you know? So, so his, so that was his, you know, conclusion. I mean, it's the opinion of Ibn Taymiyyah, Allah and Ibn Qayyim, that, that when the riba, when becomes a culture, it kills the spirit of charitable lending. And I mean, and that's enough of an evil, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to, to make it, you know, prohibitive. All right. So I mean, and that's, one theory. There are many mm -hmm. other theories. So, so basically, what uh, what he concluded uh, from what you're saying is that the the strongest opinion, according to him, as to why uh, there's such a strong condemnation prohibition of usury, is that uh, people stop giving charity. Um, so, like you mentioned, if somebody if somebody comes to you and they say they need a loan for five thousand dollars, in your mind, you're saying I could put this into a savings account, which could get riba usury and it would increase. So why would I give the money to you instead? Right? Yeah. I mean, that, that becomes the culture. I mean, that's one opinion, right? He says that's the strong, as a, as a society, like that, that spirit of charity gets, gets, gets killed or gets, you know, very injured. Mm -hmm. What about, what about something like um, a mortgage on a house on like a, a large house? How does that affect a person? What is the harm? For example, they put, they want to buy a house for 1 million. And they're they're paying interest on it, and it's just continuously adding up. What is the what, uh, what is the harm associated with that person for engaging in riba? Yeah, alhamdulillah. So okay, so the mortgage thing is, is more complicated, right? Because there's two layers to it. First layer is is it riba, right? The second layer, if it is riba, then like you said, what's the harm? I mean, another one of the the hikam, you know, of, of the provision of riba is is really that. Allah has given to human beings money, right? This is a gift from Allah, right? The fact that we have currency, gold and silver or paper currency, whatever, the fact that we have currency and we can transact as opposed to having to barter everything, right? It's a, it's a great blessing from Allah. Like Imam Ghazali says, you know, when you have gold and silver, you basically have everything because with that gold and silver, you can buy whatever you need, right? So it's a great mm -hmm. blessing from Allah and and using that blessing in a way that 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 is that Allah said not to use it is a great act of injustice and a great act of, of, of lack of gratitude, 
right? So that's that's another that's another aspect to it, right? Um, so here, I mean, another thing that the scholars would say also is that when when the money that people use, you know, to price their goods itself becomes subject to um, trade in a way that is not, you know, halal, uh, particularly with the deferment and increase and all of that, um, which is the riba, uh, that you are basically creating, manip you're manipulating the money. And so it's kind of like you have a, a ruler that people are using to, to, to measure things. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then people are manipulating the ruler. And so it leads to then injustice in everything. Right. Because, you know, you're not able to you interact, you have a, 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 you know, employment contract and you're buying and, you know, someone is supposed to pay you at the end of the month. And, you know, you 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 contracted for, you know, you know, two thousand dollars a month for your services. You do your services. And then when you get paid at the end of the month, maybe that that two thousand dollars is not worth as much. And maybe that's due to the um, manipulation that has happened due to the you know, whether it's printing money or inflation, whatever, right? But stemming from transactions that are not halal, right? And so basically, you're like robbing everybody in the society, right? So of course, that's also a, that's also an issue. Um, so, I, that, so that's just an, kind of to set the stage, right? So when we come to the mortgage, right? So when it comes to mortgage, the first question is, whether or not this uh, mortgage transaction, whether or not this fits the definition of riba, because the definition of riba is very um, specific, uh, and it's actually madhab specific as well. Um, uh, each madhab has a different perspective on what type of transactions would constitute riba. But generally speaking, they would agree that a qard transaction, qard is basically, we would translate it as a loan, right? Um, okay. where you, you give someone money, right? And then with the condition that they return the equivalent value of it, um, and they have the freedom to use it. It's theirs. When you transfer it to them, it's theirs. They have the freedom to use it, and they need to, re need to re repay you. If you stipulate an increase over and above the principal, then that's riba. And, and okay. one of the, the rationales is that with a qard, you don't take any risk. I give you... $50,000. I said, look, here's $50,000. Okay. Use it for whatever you want. It's yours. You have to repay me 50,000, right? I am not taking any risk. The moment I hand that money to you in your hand, it, anything that happens to tornado, volcano, alien abduction, whatever, doesn't matter. You need to pay me or your, you know, your estate needs to pay me, right? I need to get paid. And actually, if I don't get paid, I'm going to take it from your good deeds on the day of judgment. I'm going to get paid, hmm. right? So that's kind hmm. of how it works, right? So technically, I'm not taking any risk, right? So mm -hmm. therefore, the rule in, in Sharia is al-kharaj mudaman, right? That that you get return, you get you can you have a right to profit if you take risk. So the person who takes a risk gets the profit. So I'm not taking any risk, right? Because so I cannot stipulate that you have to pay me back more. It's unjustified. But mm -hmm. if I say, okay, you know, even if I were to, you know, buy something and sell it to you on installments, I have taken a risk when I bought the thing and I sold it to you so I can make profit. Or if I'm entering into, as a partner in your business, I'm, I've taken a risk so I can deserve profit. But if I do the loan thing, then I've taken zero risk. So I don't deserve any profit. So, so that's, yeah, okay. go ahead. 
So, so, so from what I've read, it seems that conventional banking, uh, with conventional banking, there's no risk. So like you mentioned, you give a person uh, $50,000 um, and you expect them to give you 55000 a couple of years from now. And irrespective of what it ha- whatever happens, like in, in the U.S., um, when the, the tornadoes, uh, the hurricanes hit, um, I think it was Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and it destroyed all the houses, um, the people still had to pay the bank back. The bank had nothing to lose. Whereas in an Islamic finance model, which I'm sure we'll get to later, um, there has to be a risk involved within the transaction. Um, and so I think from what I've read, if the house is destroyed in that instance um, under an Islamic finance model, well, the bank would also um, be uh, the bank would also have some harm. They would also have some um, harm. I think that's from what I've read. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how the transaction is is is, is structured. The Islamic always going to have to take risk. Either it's going to okay. take the risk before it sells you the thing, or it's going to and retain that risk throughout the transaction. So it depends if they're a partner with you, or okay. if they just buy something and sell it to you. If they buy it and sell it to you, they've taken the risk before it goes to you, right? Um, but if they if they enter as a partner with you, then that risk is going to be retained, you know, uh, during the transaction. Um, but what's, what's interesting is that even some conventional banks, like in the U.S., we have, so like you mentioned about Hurricane Katrina, we would need to know, like, what are the laws in Louisiana, and, right, uh, um, when it comes to, or New Orleans, right, when it comes to what they call recourse and non-recourse. So some, some uh, states, they mandate that if you give a, house, a housing loan, a mortgage, then the bank can only go after the home. And if they take the home and they sell it, that's it. They can't go after the individual for anything else over and above that. So they may take a loss. And to me, you know, that seems inherently a bit more Islamic, right? That doesn't really look exactly like the regular loan that I mentioned to you earlier, the qard, the traditional qard, where I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it now, I'm going to get it later, I'm going to get it, you know? Uh, So... I think this is one thing that has caused a bit of, of um, adds a bit of complication. But if we were to take the simple approach to say, look, what a bank is doing when they do a mortgage is a qard, right? Uh, they're effectively giving you, you buy a house, you want a house for 100,000, they're giving you 100,000 and they're saying, look, you need to pay back to me 100 plus 5% per year, right? Mm-hmm. Then, then that would be riba, right? If we concern it that way. And they're saying, and you have to buy, you're going to buy a house with it. Um, we agree that you're going to use it to buy a house, right? And so you buy the house and it's your house and they have a mortgage on the house. Um, so in a situation like that, you know, what's the harm, right? Well, I mean, the, the harm, because people would ask that question because if they do an Islamic transaction, they're going to find a lot of similarities, a lot of similar documents, similar numbers, maybe similar and, and probably similar payment schedule, right? Um, but the Islamic is going to do it a bit differently. The Islamic will, will buy the house and then sell it to you, will buy the house and then lease it to you, will buy the house and enter into a partnership with you, right? And then to slowly sell its share. And, and we can get, if you want, more detail in home financing. Um, uh, but you always know it's always buying and selling, buying. There's a, that, that's where the risk is happening, right? We okay. buy it. So, okay. um, so, so then, Yanni, what's the harm? So the harm, well, there's two main harms, okay? One 
And this is something people don't think about, but you know, there's this late payment penalty, you know, in the contract, it's a typical thing that if you don't pay on time, they're going to charge you, you know, a late payment penalty. Well, from an Islamic perspective, generally speaking, that is considered riba as well. Mm-hmm. So we need to be careful actually with late payment penalties. If we say that this is riba, right, then it's really harmful because all the ayat that talk about riba would apply. You know, mm-hmm. when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, that fear Allah and leave whatever is due to you from riba if you're truly believers. If you don't do it, then then be take notice of a war from Allah and His Prophet. And there's like no other sin, right? Where the hadith or the ayah says that Allah will be at war with you, right? Except for riba and harming one of the awliya of Allah. One of the friends of Allah, right? And some narrations say that you'd be given a weapon, right? On the day of judgment and go and fight Allah. You know, it's like really scary stuff, right? Um, and and swimming in like rivers of blood and things like it's, you know, it's one of the, you know, major sins. Um, you know, if it's really, you know, riba. Um, so, so subhanAllah, and it all goes around whether this is really a qarb, you know, whether it's probably properly characterized as a qarb. Um, you know, this is mortgage and then other forms of, of conventional banking. And so, so and that, that's where the harm is, right? The harm is the harm is in the hereafter. And then, of course, you know, the harm is in the lack of barakah. I mean, we have the hadith of a person travels dusty, dirty, right? Raises his hands to Allah, says, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi. Um, all of the requisite, he has all the requisite things to make his prayer answered, answerable. Right, he's traveling. When you're traveling, your your, your prayer is answered. He raises his hands. Your prayer is answered when you raise your hands. Right, Allah is shy to let you bring them down with nothing. He keeps asking in a desperate fashion, "Oh Allah, oh my Lord, oh my Lord." Right, that also makes your prayer answered. But the Hadith says, "Matamu haram." His food is haram. Right, his drink is haram. His, you know, his you know, uh, clothing is haram. Right, and he he nourishes body on haram. So how could his prayer ever be answered? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what, 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 what about um, if things are out of necessity? Let's say out of necessity, a person needs to engage in riba for their, and I mean necessity, let's say it's for the sake of their life. For example, you have somebody who's poor, you have a mother who has no money, um, and she goes out to she goes out to the market to buy something. And the man says, this is going to cost, you know, $10. And she says, well, I don't have 10. Um he said, I'll give it to you, but later you have to give me 15 um, or 20. Out of, so in situations where there's a necessity, um, is one allowed to engage in riba? So, I mean, in a situation like that, I mean, that doesn't necessarily have to be a ribby transaction if it's being done by the owner of the store, right? Uh, whether, whether they're actually selling her the, the groceries or whatever, right, uh, at a market. So that's, that could be an acceptable transaction. But, I mean, if... Let's say the person in the in the, the next person in line sees this person in desperate situation and she needs this you know food to eat and he's starving and, and there's no other way and and then the person says well you know I will I'll pay for it you know medicine for your child I'll pay for it but you need to pay me back X amount with an, with interest um, I mean obviously that looks to me like a ribawi um, transaction 
if a person is in necessity, I mean, if they're truly in a state of necessity, I mean, they can eat pork and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, things of that nature. So, I mean, it would, it would generally fall under, under that type of category, but obviously to, to determine this particular situation, is this an act, is this a state of necessity or not? That would need you know, a scholar to give a fatwa, you know, uh, to, to that specific, uh, case. Um, but what I wanted to mention, you know, yeah, about, about, uh, so the harm is clear, right? The harm is clear if this really is a riba, right? Okay. Um, the issue is really, is it a riba, right? Or is it something else? Or is there, is there any doubt? Um, and, you know, we have hadith, right? In 40 hadith, al-halal ubain wa al-haram ubain wa bainnahu amurun mushtabihad. The haram is clear, halal is clear, haram is clear. And between them are, are things that are doubtful that most people don't know, right? And whoever goes into those areas will go into the haram, will fall into the haram like a, like a shepherd who shepherds his sheep around the, 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 the private, you know, grazing area of the king. He's going to probably mm -hmm. fall in. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of scholars a lot have said clear cut all of conventional banking is riba and it's done, right? Okay. There are others who have other perspectives. So there are some who say, you know, respectable scholars, field councils who say that in non-Muslim countries, the rule is different, you know, and, and particularly, you know, like the European field council gave a fatwa said that in non-Muslim non countries. Um, and I mean, I imagine that particularly if there's no Islamic options, that you can actually um, enter into uh, basic a, a ribawi transaction uh, to buy a home. And, and they base that in the Hanafi fiqh, in some, in some action of the Prophet ﷺ, right? And where Abu Hanifa actually allowed, you know, certain conditions, allowed, you know, uh, people who are in, in a non-Muslim country to actually transact, um, with riba, where they are strengthening themselves, particularly when they are receiving it, because they're strengthening themselves and they don't have a Muslim community and a Muslim country that will facilitate them to do all of the Islamic, you know, transactions. And they give some proof where Al-Abbas, who was involved in riba in, in Mecca after he became Muslim and the Prophet ﷺ didn't tell him to stop. Mm -hmm. There's other hadith that say there's no riba between a Muslim and a, and a non-Muslim in the land of war, Dar al-Harb. Um, and so they take these things, but then they also apply a level of not necessity, but the level of what they call below necessity, which is called need, haja. So they say mm -hmm. that there is a need for Muslims in those countries to strengthen themselves, to do these type of transactions. They need these houses. And so they, they said, we're going to take this opinion, but we're only going to limit it to a need, which is they okay. say a primary residence is a need. And we have this opinion, even though it's technically sort of a minority opinion amongst the Madahib. Um, even in the Hanafi school itself, there's differences of opinion. So we're going to apply this to fulfill this particular issue. So you have something like that, right? But that's operative in, you know, non-Muslim countries. And then you have, you know, uh, Al-Azhar, Dar al-Ifta and Al-Azhar took a completely different approach. They said it's not even riba. They said this is not actually a traditional qard, what a bank does. They oh, said wow. the bank is making a type of investment. And, and therefore, the fact that it's making this type of investment, this is a new transaction. We don't have a classical term for it. It's a new thing, right? And so, therefore, they looked at it and they said that this transaction 
in general. There's nothing to prohibit it in Sharia. Um, so they allowed it. But what's really interesting is that even the muftis from Al-Azhar will say, if you have a traditional classical Islamic alternative, i.e. like an Islamic bank, right? Um, that's using, you know, that's approved by scholars and using the traditional contracts. It's better for you to do that. Get out. Don't be in the doubtful gray area. Mm-hmm. Get out of the gray area. Be in the safe zone. But if you have no safe zone, if there are no options, right? What are you to do? You know, can you buy a house? Then you have, you know, the European Field Council has their fatwa in non-Muslim countries. The Azhar has their fatwa that, that you know, conventional banking is not um, the same as a qard. And so the qard rules don't apply. And they saw that it's, that it's something that's permissible. So, you know, there is... So for, so for me, right, it'd be hard for me to just say definitely mortgage is haram. Whoever has a mortgage is like, you know, waiting to be in a river of blood on the day of judgment or whatever, right? It would be hard for me to like uh-huh. say that, right? Um, because I know these other opinions exist and they are credible opinions, right? But all of that in light of the hadith, halal is clear, haram is clear, between them uh-huh. are things that are not clear, Right. Avoid the things that are not clear, you know. Mm-hmm. Go with the Islamic things that are that are approved by a panel of scholars, and scholars all over the world are saying this is good, this is halal. Why would you not go to that, right? But like, like for example, like in in, a, in the Canadian context, for example, mm-hmm. we don't have a single, or even also in the U.S., primarily in Canada, we don't have a single bank, a Muslim mm-hmm. bank. Um, is does that create a, a does that fulfill the condition of necessity then of one trying to acquire a home? I mean, but there are companies, uh, I mean, it's not only banks that can, that you can, that can finance a home. I mean, I know now there are companies in, in Canada, there's a company called Menzid and there's a company called Ansar. Uh, you know, I know there was one called a UM financial. I think maybe they're not functioning anymore, but I mean, there are some companies. Okay. Not that I'm like, I'm not like endorsing any company or whatever, you know, obviously, uh, the there are certain Sharia um, guidelines and governance that has to be around uh, for that a company has to implement in order for it to be truly Islamic. But but I think more and more companies are coming up. Um, you know, when we talk about necessity, it's a pretty high standard. I mean, you're talking about you know almost like life and death you know situations. Uh, I think owning a home, it's hard for that to be a necessity, but it could probably fall under the category of haja, which is need. And and that's a, a big category, um, which is that if you don't have your needs fulfilled, then it creates difficulty for you. Necessity is just like it, you can die, right? Okay. Uh, but, okay. but need, haja, is that um, it will create, diff- you make your life difficult, right? And and that that is and when an entire society has a need, it may be treated as as if it's an individual necessity. So it can give some leeway. And I think a lot of these fatwas, particularly the European fatwas, they took those things into account. That's why they allowed for primary residence, right? But they didn't allow for investment properties or business financing using conventional loans, which I mean the traditional Hanafi opinion may have allowed for that. Hmm, but okay. but they are they're applying this need filter. Um, and then there are ways to structure a, a home financing, even with a non-Muslim, that's Islamic. You know, uh, you can basically very simply, if you agree with him, say, look, 
how much are you asking for the home? He says, I'm asking, you know, 300,000. So would you be willing to provide owner financing? You know, would you be able to, would you be willing, you know, I can pay it over five years, right? And I'm willing to pay you whatever, let's say whatever the market interest rate is, let's say it's, you know, 5%. I'm willing to pay you the 5% that you would, you know, and maybe the, the interest rate that he would get in a, in a normal bank account is like 1%. Um, but would you be willing to, you know, sell it to me on an installment basis, you know, uh, with a markup, you know, 5% per year markup. And if he says, yes, you just did an Islamic finance transaction with him, mm-hmm. right? With, you know, Joe Schmo, you know, the Canadian dude, right? Who has no, know nothing about Sharia. Uh-huh. You might need to make sure like certain things are tweaked, like the late fee, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that's something, you know, I do consulting and happy to help, you know, with things like that, you know, but it's, it's doable. Hey, you know, would you be willing to do um, to do a lease with option to buy, you know, where, you know, I, I want this property, you know, I'll pay a certain down payment and I'll lease it from you. And then, you know, in five years, you know, I will buy it. You know, maybe he says, yes, that's an Islamic transaction, you know. OK, so if we if we have we have two options, we have option A where um, you want to buy a house. It's for a million dollars. You go to the bank and the bank gives you a loan and you use that loan to buy the house and then you pay them um, with riba. We have option B where you want to buy the house for a million. You go to the bank and the bank buys it and the bank charges you for rent. So every month you're, you're living. So the bank owns the house, but you're living in there. You're paying monthly fees to the owner uh, for rent because you and your family are living there, but you're also paying to buy the house as well. Um, the former seems to be the model of conventional banking and the latter seems to be Islamic banking. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 that's true. I mean, that's one example. Um, that's one example of, uh, of how an Islamic transaction could be structured. I mean, typically when it comes to home financing, there are maybe like four different structures right um you want to go into home financing kind of how yeah yeah okay just really briefly right so so probably depending on which jurisdiction right uh um one of the most popular ones is the murabaha murabaha is basically just a what they call a cost plus sale or an installment sale and the way it works is that you know there's this house we take the house it's hundred thousand you say you go to the bank i want this house the bank will say okay well here's the way i work i'll buy the house I'll buy it. I will own it. And then I will immediately sell it to you, you know, for, you know, 5% profit rate, you know, over 30 years. You okay with that? Yes. Okay. okay. And then the bank, sometimes the bank will say, I want you to sign a promise that if I buy this house, you promise to buy it from me because I don't want to be stuck with the house. Right. Sometimes they, they make you sign uh, a okay, promise, okay. which is okay. They can't sell you the house before they own it, but they can make you promise that you will, that you will um, okay. buy it. And it can be a binding promise where if you break the promise, they buy for a hundred, then you decide you walk away, and they have to just sell it quickly on the market. And maybe they only sell it for like ninety nine. Then they'll come after you for the one thousand. You broke the promise, you know. Um, I relied on it, and I bought this house, so they'll ask you to cover that difference. Okay. But but so they would just buy it, and then they would sell it to you, right? So there are a number of banks who use that in the U.S. Um, UIF uses that. Uh, University Islamic Financial, Devon Bank uses that. Uh, it's used all over the world. Um, typically, it's a very good model for a if there's a fixed return. Um, and the and then 
once the bank sells the house to you, you own the house. The house is put as collateral so the bank can have a lien on the house. And technically, I mean, if, if, if the house burns down or whatever, it's your house and you still owe the bank the money. Okay. Right. Because they sold it to you. When they bought it, they took the risk of it. And then they, they deserve the profit. They have the right to sell that thing that they bought for whatever price they want. Just like okay. any other merchant. Okay. So that's one that's called Murabaha. That's a very simple, very straightforward, plain vanilla uh, type of transaction. The main limitation is that the bank can't charge a variable rate. Um, okay. Generally. Um, in Malaysia, it is possible to charge a variable rate. There's a mechanism to do that. Um, but that's more so kind of Malaysia specific. Um, but in general, they can't charge a, a, a um, variable rate. Okay. Then the other option. But just is, quickly, just quickly. So the, the option that I explained um, fell into the category of murabaha, correct? Yeah, or no? The one you said is, is renting. So I'll, I'm going to talk okay, about okay. that one. Okay. So the, second, so the second one is also buying. The bank will buy it and then they can rent it to you, right? They can rent it to you. Um, now they own it. The bank may set up like a, a, a private, like a LLC or some kind of, you know, corporation or something to hold the house. Um, but technically the bank will own it and the bank will hold on to the ownership of that house and will lease it to you. And when it leases it to you, part of the money is used is paid as rent. And part of it is, is to basically um, money for you to increase your ownership in the house. Now, sometimes the way they do that, sometimes they may transfer the ownership gradually, but there also is also another way where they transfer it at, at one at once. Um, so it's like they basically, if your payment is, let's say, but they buy the house, the house is a hundred thousand. The bank buys it, is going to lease it to you for thirty years, and let's say you're going to pay, you know, a thousand dollars a month, right? And let's just say, for sake of argument, half of that is going to the principal, right? And then half of that is 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 um, to buy the house, your payment to, to basically buy the house. And the other half is the rent, which is the profit of the bank. So the bank will just collect all of that money that you're putting aside to buy the house. And then maybe at the end of the transaction, the bank will then sell you the house, you know, using that money that's been put aside. Right. Okay. Um, or in other cases, the bank will consider, uh, the bank will say, look, if you pay the rent at the end entire in, other, for 30 years, I will give you the house as a gift. I will transfer it to you as a gift. So in, in all cases, there's an arrangement where you're renting the house from the bank and the bank is going to transfer the ownership to you. So the issue with that one is the bank owns the house throughout the whole period. So if the house gets destroyed, technically the bank doesn't have a right to charge you any rent. Right. So it's a bit riskier for the bank. Um, there are some mechanisms, details that can be done to try to mitigate some of that. But inherently, the fact that the bank owns it, like the example you gave about Katrina, there's a disaster, you know, it's unexpected and the insurance is not going to cover it, for example, it only covers part of the value of the house. Technically, the bank is on the hook. Hmm, they, okay. They're renting this house to you. And it's like, hey, you can't charge me rent if the house isn't here. Right. So that's that's Ijara. Um, that's also used in the U.S. It's used in, you know, by UIF because I used to be on the Sharia board of UIF, so I'm a bit more familiar with their uh, products. But um, uh, there's other companies that, that use the Ijara model. Um, the third model is is basically similar to Ijara. It's diminishing musharaka 
and this is kind of a lot of people would say this is like the best. Oh, the good thing about the ijara is that it allows for a variable rental. So, you know, when you see sometimes mortgage rates, they have like a variable rate and like the variable rate might be lower than the fixed rate. You have like fixed rate, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's a variable rate, which is like, okay, we'll fix it for five years and then it'll change. So you can do that with ijara because just like you're leasing a, an apartment or something, they can say, look, I'm going to fix the rate, the rent for five years. After that, it's going to change you know, based okay. on whatever benchmark. So Ijara allows for that variability. So that's that's one of the, the benefits and, of it. And also if if the variable, is, if, if your payment is longer, so if you choose to pay over a span of 30 years rather than 10 years, then your your payments will also increase as well, right? Yeah, I mean, typically, I mean, because you're if you're paying over 30 years, the bank is going to expect, the bank is going to want a profit and, and you're going to pay off the house in a shorter period of time. So, so typically, I mean, the longer you take to pay, the more expensive it's going to be. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm not even typically, I would say like all the time, all you know, the time, right? <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mathematical function. Um, so, so then the third one is, is what they call diminishing musharaka, right? Diminishing musharaka is basically the bank will, and sometimes the bank will actually set up a company like an LLC or something. And, and the company you and the bank will basically be like shareholders in this little company and the company will buy the house. And so now you have joint own, you have co-ownership of the house. Maybe you own 80% and the bank owns 20, uh, sorry, maybe you own 20% and the bank owns 80%. And then what will happen is that the bank will lease to you, right? It's share. So you're paying a lease to, you know, um, uh, from the bank. And then you will also promise, you will promise that it's a binding promise that you will buy the share of the bank, you know, at a regular price, that you will be buying the share of the bank and the bank is promising that they're going to sell you um, its share at a particular price, you know, typically at the original, um, the original price. Um, so if the house was 100,000, you put up 20, the bank put up 80. So now there's a partnership. Um, so you will be renting, leasing uh, the share of the bank and then every month you will be buying a, a share of the bank's share. Uh, and typically in Islamic finance, um, when you're buying the share, you're typically the agreement is that the share will be sold at the historical price. I mean, the, high, the house may double in value, right, technically. But when you are buying the share, you're buying it at the original price. Hmm. Um, now, is it possible for it to be different? It could be different. Um, but typically um, banks are not don't really want to like profit from the increase in value of the house and the customers don't want to pay more if house increases. Similarly, banks don't want to get less money if the house decreases in value. And typically customers are still willing to pay the original price, even if it decreases in value. So it typically, that's how they're structured. Um, so and eventually you will, the customer will own the entire house, right? But here, the issue you have here is that the bank owns the house throughout the period or owns a share of the house throughout mm -hmm. the period. So what happens when the Katrina situation happens, right? There is a flood, the house is destroyed, right? And, and now you've reached a point where it's like 50-50 ownership between you and the bank, right? So the, the customer typically has an obligation to buy the share of the bank, right? So at the original price. But the issue is like, Share of what? There's no house exactly. anymore. Exactly. It's gone, right? So 
this is where there could be additional risk on the bank. And it depends how it's structured, right? It depends. Um, sometimes they'll say, well, the customer has to get the proper insurance. If he didn't, then it's his fault. So he needs to like cover for his like negligence. Um, you know, some institutions, you know, there's always going to be insurance, right? And typically the insurance is going to cover. Um, but the issue always comes, what if the insurance is not enough, right? Then in a situation like that, who's going to take that risk? Exactly. Right. Or, you know, if, 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 if there's a, if there has to be, a, if there's a foreclosure, if the, if the customer doesn't pay and there's a foreclosure, um, typically the bank can say, well, you promised, you have a binding promise, you're going to buy the house. So we're going to sell the house, you know, uh, but you're still, you're still on the hook to buy the house, even if there's a foreclosure. And if there's not, uh, and if there's not enough money to cover the bank's share, you know, um, typically the customer would be on the hook because he's supposed to buy out the bank at a particular price. So, so if we, so in conventional banking, if, if you're, if you're, if you're paying, if you've gotten the loan um, and you're paying them back and the house is destroyed, you're still completely obligated to pay it off. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. So now that's, in that's my, that's my understanding uh, that you're, that you're obligated um, because you know, it's your house and, and it's your house and you owe the bank. And so, but the issue comes that if you don't, if the house is destroyed, the house is a collateral of the bank. I don't really know whether or not, because in the US we have states that have, that are what they call recourse and states with no recourse. Okay. Recourse means that if something happens, if there's a foreclosure or anything, and the bank takes the house, they take the person's house, right? And they sell it. Any shortfall, if it's with recourse, it means you can go back and go after the person. If it's a non-recourse state, then it means you cannot go after the person after you took taken their house. So, okay. Okay. so that's like it might be 50-50, the states in the US or seven, you know, I don't know. Each state has its laws that they have put in place. But in it, when it comes to natural disasters, I don't know whether it's the same logic, you know, um, okay. or whether there's a different logic. Because these are all, you know, like I said, state by state laws and policy that goes into it. Okay. But now, so we have the Musharaka model. We have yeah. the model that, um, let's say it's 50-50. Um, the, the, the customer owns 50%, the bank owns 50%, and now the house is destroyed. Um, now there's a risk associated. The bank came in knowing that there was a risk that something like this could happen. And now the person is not necessarily obligated to pay the other 50 off because there's, there's nothing left. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is, like I said, different perspectives, but typically like in Malaysia, for example, they do have this perspective that if there is like a total loss, you know, um, that whatever shortfall that the insurance doesn't cover, um, the bank just has to take that risk. Okay. So what are the, what, what, when, when, when we look at Islamic finance and conventional banking, um, is there one that is more superior to another? Um, and if Islamic finance is superior, um, in what ways is it superior? Okay. Great question. So like I said, when I, generally talk about Islamic finance, you know, I, I, I give this definition, right, which is that it's finance that seeks to maximize the benefit, you know, and minimize the harm to individuals and societies with particular focus. I typically say with particular focus on the universal values of protecting faith, life, uh, intellect, 
family and wealth, right? Because actually all, all societies agree on that. Um, mm -hmm. All religions agree on that. So where I would say it becomes very clear the difference, not necessarily to some extent on like the home financing, but home financing is not a good place to start, right? Because what's a better place to start is actually like investments and, and deposits, like where you put your money, right? Mm -hmm. Because we go back to that hadith, right, of, of the, the person who is dusty and dirty and he's raising his hands to Allah making dua, but, you know, his food is haram, his drink is haram, his clothes are haram. How? Probably because, not necessarily that he's eating pork and drinking wine, but probably the source of income that he has is haram, right? Um, the person who... Uh, came to the Prophet Sallallahu and said, or, Ya Rasulullah, you know, ask Allah to make me, make my dua answered. And he told him, make sure that whatever you eat is pure and your prayers will be answered. Once mm -hmm. again, how do you make sure it's pure? Right? I don't think it's necessarily the zabiha. The zabiha is important, but probably more so is make sure that your money is pure. Right? So, so now you put your money in a bank, right? Uh, you have an Islamic bank, you have a conventional bank, right? They're next to each other. You put your money in, in, in a conventional bank. The conventional bank is going to use that money to give loans, right? He doesn't just have the money in a big safe, right? Mm -hmm. big vaults, right? He's giving, you know, 90% of that out in loans. What kind of things is he financing? You know, he's probably financing, you know, normal things, but he's also financing businesses that are involved in, you know, haram activities, gambling, alcohol, you know, pork, beer, whatever, cigarettes, right? Um, weapons manufacturing, whatever, right? And let alone, he's also taking that money and putting it in, in interest-bearing instruments, right? And he's financing companies that are by and large, you know, involved in, in interest and things like that. So your money is, is, mashallah, facilitating all of that, right? Mm -hmm. And then you might not be receiving any interest, but you are, not you, right? The person, the, the, the yeah. theoretical you, right? Is actually helping um, perpetuate this, these bad activities, right? So, so that's problematic. And then you instead put that money in a, and if your person is receiving profit, that's even worse, Right. Now, and using that money to like, you know, buy food and buy clothes. And now, if he's putting it in an Islamic bank, the Islamic bank is not going to finance any activity or do any investment except for us asking their scholars, is this halal? Hmm. And okay. I do, right? And, and so you can rest assured that my money is being, not being used to do anything wrong, right? And, 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 uh, and I am supporting a system that is by and large, focused on asking the scholars and submitting to the Sharia, right? So that's from the banking side, from the deposits. Now, as you mentioned, there's no Islamic banks in, in, in Canada. And so people don't think about the deposit side. Then what about the investment side? So I'm sure a lot of people have, you know, um, investment funds, they buy stocks, things like that. So and then if you look at an Islamic versus a conventional um, fund, stock fund, right? Um, so they're like the S&P, someone investing in the S&P 500, right? Yeah. So they're investing in these companies. A conventional asset manager is just going to say, I'm going to invest in these companies because they're big and they're profitable 
and they're paying dividends and and I'm going to give those dividends, you know, pass them on to my uh, to the unit holders. Right. And that's how you're going to fund your retirement and everything. Right. Um, now. Now, a lot of those companies are weapons manufacturers. A lot of them are doing alcohol. They're doing they're doing, you know, gambling. They're doing whatever haram things or maybe their companies are their businesses is generally halal. But um, they have a lot of money in, in interest-bearing instruments. So a lot of their profits, they're getting a significant profits from interest, right? Or from their bond investments or other kinds of investments that are not Sharia compliant. And then all of that will be feeding in. That's going to be how the person is going to fund their retirement and pay for their kid's school and all this kind of stuff, right? Exactly. Now, now, you, now you look at an Islamic uh, investor. The Islamic investor has a Sharia board of scholars who are specialized in Islamic finance. And, and, and so anything that they invest in, the, you know, the scholars set a, give a universe of them. This is what you can invest in. All of the haram things are completely eliminated. Like they don't even look at them, right, as potential investments. And then they have this universe of things that they can invest in that are not involved in alcohol, gambling, you know, um, whatever, you know, weapons, uh, pornography, all of these kind of things. They're not involved in that, right? And even if the company might have some involvement and make some money, the scholars will say no more than 5%. Like if okay. 5%, that's like the most it will tolerate of the revenues from these haram activities, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then so, and then the scholars will look at other aspects. They'll look at how much is this company involved in conventional interest-based borrowing? They say they, they cannot be involved. They cannot have too much interest-based borrowing. So how much is too much, right? So typically, the scholars will use a one-third as a kind of a rule of thumb. They say no more than one-third of the value of this company can be represented by conventional interest-bearing debt, okay? Uh, because paying riba is haram. So we don't want to invest in anything that's paying riba any significant amount of riba. Right. And then also they'll say taking riba is also haram. So they'll say no more than one third of the value of this company can be represented by deposits and bonds and and securities that are earning interest. Because we don't want to be involved in companies that are paying a lot of interest or taking a lot of interest. And then they'll say, you know, this five percent that no more than five percent of its revenue can be haram. And typically the scholars say with all of that, they'll say that when you and when you make profit, if you get any dividends, if you know that like 4.5% like of their revenue is coming from haram sources, you take 4.5%, that haram pit bit, and uh -huh. you give it away in charity to purify it, right? So they mm -hmm. have this framework and that this is actually how you invest, you know, and maybe a company is halal, but they decide to make a new acquisition or they decide to take upon a lot of debt, right? And then this, there's a, the scholars, they monitor these companies and they say, hey, this company with the new, with this latest quarterly report, it's now falling into the haram category. And the company, the Islamic company will immediately sell it, get rid of it, okay. right? Unless, I mean, unless he's, they're actually in a losing position, the scholars give some leeway to hold on to it a little bit more so you can at least break even. Right. But you get rid of it. So, I mean, there's no comparison. 
right? Between an Islamic, investing in an Islamic fund that's doing all of that work under the supervision of the scholars, yani institutionalizing taqwa of Allah, right? Like fearing Allah on a taqwa, on, on an institutional level. On Allah. Huh. You know what I mean? So, so those things, it's, you don't have to like convince someone that Islamic is different. The, the issue is more on the home financing side. It's like, oh, but I'm paying the same amount. Okay, I don't think that this is such a big difference or whatever, which, yeah, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. But we also need to work on those, other, on those other fronts, you know, as well, particularly on the investment side. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's a good point you brought up that Islamic finance is more than just house financing. Um, there's so many different dimensions to it, especially investing, because uh, what we're witnessing now, and I think part of the Bitcoin phenomenon, is now there's been so many people, including Muslims, who've entered into the investment cycle. Um, and I've, I've seen a firsthand within my own family, within my peers, that there's a lot of interest now wanting to go into the stock market and to, um, and to begin investing. But um, there's some there's some research. I know there's this app, I think it's called Zoya, um, which mm-hmm. kind of tells you which stocks are kind of halal and which ones aren't. But those are also decisions that have to be made as well. And to me, the realization now is that also is an aspect of Islamic finance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It definitely is, you know, I mean, where you put your money. I mean, the early scholars and, and the Zuhat, they would care so much about where their money comes from. You know, making sure that they're not involved in anything doubtful, you know. Um, uh, so I think this is a this is a really big uh, thing. And I mean, Alhamdulillah, I mean, having these these types of uh, apps, like you mentioned, um, you know, really helps. Um, so. So, yeah, I mean, mashallah. And this is also how we're going to strengthen ourselves, you know, by fearing Allah and by, you know, investing and saving. And and because, I mean, if you don't invest, I mean, you know. You know, like the rationale, right? I mean, when one of the old fatwas of Al-Rajhi was very interesting because, you know, classically, traditionally, not that traditionally, but a while back, you know, when scholars were first debating this, they were saying, like, how could you invest in a company that even has one penny of riba, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you're a part owner and you're responsible. But then the other side said, well, you have widows and orphans and they have, you know, money and people who are, you know, trying to retire and they don't know how to invest and there's inflation and, and you need to pay zakah. And, and so like their money will just dwindle down to, you know, and decrease significantly. And so because of that need, that's haja, right? Because of that need and the difficulty at the societal level, then um, scholars gave these um, rules that, that allow you to invest, you know, based on these um, principles that um, are more, they're more in detail in uh, IOFI, Sharia standards, A-O-I-F-I. Those who are interested can look up the IOFI standards, um, IOFI Sharia standards, and then look at the English standards and then look at what they call financial papers, which is stocks and bonds. And they can find the um, the particular, you know, standard that speaks about, section of the standard that speaks about the rules on investing. But that's the that's sort of the history you know, it's like people need to invest because if they don't, their money will, you know, dwindle. They still have to pay zakah. They're still going to face inflation. And we want, you know, Muslims to, to be able to preserve their wealth. So just wanted, you know, to share that bit of, you know, historical context. And I, I think it's important because in today's age, 
the idea of investing in something which is 100% clear, uh, clean of riba is something which is almost impossible. And so um, seeing that some scholars have allowed 5%, I've even seen some scholars increase that. I think Mufti Taqli Uthmani um, actually increases that to a higher level as well. So it's, it's interesting to see that there is some leeway um, on this topic. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, I'm not familiar with the uh, opinion of Mufi Osmani. I think, I think the the um, uh, the I asked actually one of my friends who runs an Islamic fund. I said we we've, we've been in Islamic finance for you know 30, 40 years, you know, and especially in countries like Malaysia, you know, where you, you have all the Islamic banks and everything, you know, are there companies that are a hundred percent Islamic? If I say I just want to invest in the hundred percent Islamic uh -huh. companies, can you make a portfolio? He said it's very difficult. I mean, unless you basically only invest in Islamic banks and what they call Islamic REITs, which are basically like, you know, companies that effectively buy property and then rent it out to, you know, maybe like 100% Sharia compliant uh, tenants. Um, mm -hmm. And they buy the property using Sharia compliant financing. And then you have Islamic banks that are, you know, everything they do has to be um, Sharia compliant. But he said to try to find companies like a portfolio of companies that are regular companies that that is diversified, that like nobody is taking any conventional financing. It's like very difficult, if not impossible. Hmm. So that's the world that we live in, you know, and we exactly. have to kind of work with it. Exactly. Um, and just to, just on a final note, I just the last question I have for you is, um, you know, you've worked with these Islamic finance uh, institutions across the world, both in the Muslim world and ones in, in, in the non-Muslim world. Um, what is the what is it's a very big question, but what does the future look like in terms of Islamic finance? Um, are we are we going to see more of these institutions spread throughout the Western lands? Um, just I mean, I, I'll leave it at that. OK, what does the future look like? OK, Alhamdulillah. so so one of the trends that I'm noticing is I'm noticing a type of convergence between um, sustainability, ESG, ESG is environmental, social, basically environmental and social considerations, and Islamic. Because Islamic is, is inherently, um, you know, it has those aspects there. It has the environmental, the social aspects there, right? Um, and so, so I think there are, there is a natural, there is a natural, um, you can say like alliance that can be that can be made. So I think more and more we're going to see Islamic principles, uh, um, sustainability principles being being uh, integrated into Islamic, and and people who are concerned about you know sustainability, um, maybe you know embracing Islamic more. I mean we we did actually see that even in the investment space in the U.S. Like there are a lot of churches that invest in Islamic funds because they see that these Islamic funds are aligned to their values, right? And as those values become more prevalent, um, like, you know, um, a relative of mine working in an investment company, and he said that there was an opportunity to invest in a gambling company, very profitable, but it was killed um, by the management because of the fact that they had social concerns, right? Gambling, mm. you're destroying society. I mean, we were already, that's already our, in our, in our standards, right? So, so I think that, that there is going to be a type of convergence, but I think Islamic is going to really have to go beyond the minimum. I think, you know, in the past, we looked at it like we have to, um, we're trying to survive, right? 
And so we're not necessarily trying to go above and beyond. And, and you know, so we don't want to screen out things unnecessarily. You know, we don't want to say, you know, if you're not looking after the environment, we're not going to invest in it. If you're not treating your workers well, we're not going to invest in that company. Right. We're like we're trying to avoid riba, like pork, uh, alcohol, like those basics. Right. We and it, to go above and beyond, like we don't have the capacity necessarily to do that. But I think we're going to have to do that. So I think on the Islamic side, we're going to have to see more um, alignment with the sustainability and and uh, the environmental and social concerns. And many of those are actually mandatory, I would say. Um, and, and I think that will be an inroad for Islamic to enter other markets, um, to enter into these sustainable spaces, um, because we can leverage on the fact that, you know, we've been doing this, right? Our, our investments are, are socially responsible from the beginning. We've been doing that before it was cool, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's one thing with as far as Islamic and sustainability. And that's why I'm kind of focused on that on that intersection. Um, between Islamic and sustainability. I think that um, obviously the fact that the Muslim world is growing very quickly, it's developing very quickly. Um, we're going to see more Western institutions, conventional finance wanting to tap the Muslim uh, market. And probably they'll see that they need to um, embrace Islamic finance. That's probably to do that and, and learn about it. So we'll probably see, see that, uh, that trend also. Um, and, and I think also we have, you know, new players, you know, fintech players that are coming, that are coming in. And, and I think a lot of the things that we, it was difficult for us to do, like, like the real true profit sharing, you know, the equity, um, types of investments, uh, that, um, that historically Islamic finance scholars, Islamic economists were saying, this is the ideal to have more sharing. And their perspective is that when there's more sharing and as opposed to debt-based transactions, you know, when there is a, a shock, we all absorb the shock. You know, the entrepreneur loses, but the financier also loses and they can share it, you know. But when it's a debt transaction, it's more so it's uh, it's not as resilient, right? The, the entrepreneur takes the full hit and the, um, the financier doesn't. Um, but that's kind of how banks work. Banks are highly leveraged. Banks are, they don't, they can't absorb a lot of loss. Like if a okay. bank lost like 20% on its full portfolio, the bank would go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Like it can't even handle maybe even 10%. It might go bankrupt, you know, because it's highly leveraged. You know, they borrow money from people and then they, they promise to pay it back on demand, but then they deploy like 90% of that, you know, to loans. So if they... If they lose 10%, 15% of the viable loans, then they won't be able to pay people back. So the bank will be bankrupt. Hmm, exactly. So, so that banks can't take a lot of risk. But now we have fintech companies coming up, crowdfunding companies coming up, right? Who are saying, we have a different model. You know, we can give higher returns and we can take risk. And we have these te this technology that can help mitigate some of the risk and automate certain things and AI, you know. So probably um, with those, with the emerging technology, we can maybe move more towards some of the instruments of Islamic finance, the more, you know, participative instruments, the more, you know, uh, equity based uh, sharing that maybe in a banking environment, we're just not really feasible. Um, mm. So I think all of those things, 
um, uh, inshallah, I think there'll be convergence, you know, the standards, it'll become more clear. Um, we already have like a lot of jurisdictions adopting like international standards like IOFI. So I think people will learn more. The standards will become more clear. Um, and um, I think the future is, is bright, inshallah. I mean, I, you know, when I was in Malaysia, I was I loved it because like as a Muslim, it's like I can live an Islamic life. You know, I can eat halal food. You know, I can finance halal. I can, you know, my bank account is halal. If I need a car, you know, I can get it in a halal way. You know, I don't feel insurance. I can get it in a halal way. You know, I don't feel like, like I'm disadvantaged as a Muslim, right? But that's in Malaysia. I mean, not all Muslims have that. But I would hope, inshallah, that as things also become more global, you know, that that you, even if you're in Canada, if you want to, for example, deposit your money in an Islamic bank as things become more global even if let's say there's no islamic bank in canada but there's an app that allows you to deposit money in turkey you can make like 14 percent mm -hmm. in turkish lira and an islamic deposit exactly you know what i mean but maybe you don't know how to open an account here in turkey you know but but maybe there's an app you just push some buttons and then it now you're you're in a, you're invested in an islamic mm -hmm. deposit account in turkey in egypt in Saudi Arabia in the UAE, right? So it will make your life easier. So I think, inshallah, all those things, bi'ithnillah. Yeah, because I, I think just, just on a closing note with, you know, with global with globalization, there should be, you know, there should be a way that even Muslims in countries that don't have an Islamic bank should be able to easily access other banks, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I mean, inshallah, inshallah. And, and, uh, you know, also as education becomes more widespread, you know, hopefully like those banks in those other countries, there are ways for them to easily do Islamic transactions. Maybe there are ways without without them setting up entire Islamic bank. But, exactly. you know, maybe there'll be companies that can facilitate, you know, to 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 make their transactions, you know, in a halal way. Uh, so, yeah, inshallah. Yeah. And I think the future is bright. Inshallah. Inshallah, we, we pray that the future is bright for our community. Inshallah, we thank you, brother Ashraf, for joining us for this, this week's podcast. Um, there was a number of people who displayed interest on the topic of Islamic finance, and so uh, we thank you for answering uh, answering their questions. Uh, Barakallah fikum. Yeah, alhamdulillah, it's a pleasure. And anybody who you know needs to learn more, you know, alhamdulillah, I'm I'm here uh, in this internet world. I'm here available. I'm more than happy you know, to serve the Ummah, more than happy to answer any questions that any of your audience may have, uh, inshallah, and, and hopefully we can continue this uh, good work, please pray for us, I'm asking you your, for your prayers and all of the audience, whoever hears this, pray for me, uh, you know, uh, obviously pray for you, and that Allah gives us tawfiq and ikhlas in, in, in the work, inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah, barakallah fikum, thank you everybody for watching, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.